We're going to be um, incorporating what we learned last session um, about Sarai, who becomes Sarah in our text, as we study the uh, story of Hagar this week, um, which for me is one of the most interesting portraits of women in Torah. Um, one of the reasons I love teaching this class is because I think people in general in the world have an image of what the biblical woman, the biblical wife, you know, what that role is and what that looks like and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, and when we actually go back to the text, we find that that is just not the case. What people assume is that women have no agency, they are powerless, they are completely um, uh, dictated to by men, that they have no means of controlling their own destinies, and that's just simply not what we find when we look at, at the text dealing with these complex and amazing um, female characters. So we are uh, going to look at the story, as I said, of Hagar. So that means we need to turn to the book of Genesis. And we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 16. So we are picking up our story in the middle of the narrative about um, this family, this clan. Um, we are still dealing with Sarai while she is Sarai and not yet Sarah. And Avram is not yet Avraham. Uh, so we're going to pick up in the middle of Sarai's own story. Um, so we are at the point where Sai has had no children. She's barren. There's been a promise to her and her husband of progeny and that that progeny will become as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the, of the shore. So, um, so that takes at least one, right? And Sai doesn't even have one child at this point. So those of you who studied with us last week will remember that I gave you um, a very interesting set of readings by the biblical scholar and archaeologist and anthropologist, uh, Savina Tubal. And so in her study, uh, Sai the Priestess, Sai the Priestess, um, she talks about the fact that it's possible that the, the history of these stories is that um, Sai was actually a priestess and had been uh, not having a child by choice. Whether that's the case or whether she is, in fact, by the time we get our version of this story, she is, in fact, barren, um, doesn't matter as much uh, as does the fact that she needs to find a way to provide for herself an heir. So one of the things that uh, Savina Tubal points out is that there are two kinds of mothers uh, in the society that we're talking about, in the ancient Near Eastern world. There was the bio mother and the social mother. These are not terms unfamiliar to us. I am an adoptee. These are kinship terms quite familiar to me from my toddlerhood. Right? That I have a biological mother, and I have what in our lingo we would call an adoptive mother. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, the mom who wipes your snotty nose. Um, in my case, was my social mother. But I have a biological mother, and those are not the same people. And for those of us that that's our reality, that's just a given. It's not a, an odd thing. It's not a weird thing. It's just the way it is. With my situation, my bio mother 
gave up complete access to me, right? And I have no access back to her, none. What are you, you're talking about a, a sealed adoption? Yes. So, and, and in normative adoptions now, even if it's an open adoption, it's not like the biological mother has complete access to the child you know, to participate in its rearing. She has access to information. She might have access to, to pictures. She might have access to certain times and ways to contact the family. It is not that she lives with them and helps rear the child. So the way we do adoption, there's a complete severing of the bond with the biological mother. Um, and then you have the child who's got both, in our case, this one's completely gone. In the ancient Near East, we have documents that show that it was normative to when someone was barren and wanted a child to give one's slave to one's husband in order to become the social mother of a child. And if one gave one's slave to one's husband, one became the social mother of the child, the child became the social mother's heir. Wait, I'm not following that one. Okay. A man and a woman can't have children, and they have a slave. She has sex with the husband? Who? The slave. Of course. Absolutely. They have a baby, and now becomes their baby. It becomes like a surrogate. She is the surrogate. The sex of the sex. The slave becomes the surrogate mother, she becomes the biological mother, the social mother is the woman who couldn't have children, the child becomes the heir of the social mother. So where's the slave? Legally. So, what I was trying to point out with my big old X here, was that they didn't live the way we live in nuclear families, which is a failed ex social experiment, if you <laughs> Ask me, but that's a lecture for another time. <laughs> You're not supposed to editorial. <laughs> I'm a rabbi. Are you kidding me? Last night I couldn't editorialize. Tonight this was mine. So, um, so the the biological mother was not separated from the child because they lived in extended family units. Right? It would have been a clan living together. It would have been the women living together, mostly, and the men in the kind of their part of the compound. Um, you certainly had pair bonding between a husband and wife, the <coughs> husband and his other wife, the husband and the concubine, the husband and the slave. Right? So there were pair bonds, but there were many kinds of bonds, including... Those of you who ever watched the show Sister Wives, <laughs> and I've watched once or twice for research, for research, um, right? So Sister Wives had pair bonds also. Is that the Mormons? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So who had the ultimate say as far as women? Ha, 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 ha. So, so first I want us to absorb the social, the social norms of the time were that you lived in extended family units. If someone couldn't have a child, they had a surrogate who did not have to cut off their ties to the child. The child was raised by lots of moms, lots of aunts, lots of, you know, whoever. Um, and both had influence on the child, both reared the child. This one would have suckled the child, right? Would have nursed the child, would have changed her diaper. You know, they didn't wear diapers, but you know, wiped their nose. Um, everybody participated in that. The child became the heir of the social mother. Is the surrogate ever not a slave? 
Is the surrogate, that's a very good question. The only documentation we have from the ancient Near East is that she was always a slave. So a woman could procure a slave for the purpose of surrogacy or give her own slave to her husband as a surrogate. So did the slave continue to have a relationship with the husband? Funny you should ask. <laughs> so the question is, did the slave continue to have a relationship with the husband? I said that nicely. You said that nicely. So we do have documentation from the Code of Hammurabi, which you've heard of, I'm sure, which is um, a legal document from the ancient Near East predating our story. Um, and so what we have in that document is exactly the description of a legal case in which the wife gives her slave to the husband as a surrogate and the slave decides <laughs> she's not happy with her status as slave anymore, challenges the status of the wife. There is a legal prescription for what can happen and that is that the wife can then like reduce the slave's status and enforce that reduced status. Wait, was she reduced to be a slave? Because she's starting to challenge the wife's status, saying, I'm having the child, I'm going to be... So why would she ever we challenge We understand what that ha why that happened. What can she become worse than a slave? Dead. She goes, she goes back to being a slave. She goes, she, there is a provision made legally... Legally to return her back to her slave status. Slave, slave status. That, but you didn't answer as a slave status. Can she still have sex with the man? Well, Let's turn to chapter sixteen of the Book of Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a central question in our text. I think it is one of the central themes in our story. All right. So who's going to read at chapter sixteen? Where is are this? What page? 16, verse 1. <coughs> I'll read it. Okay, great. What, what Jump on out there, sorry. 70 at the bottom. Yes. Okay, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Look, the Lord has kept me from bearing. Concert with my maid. Perhaps I shall have a son through her. And Abram headed Sarai's request. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took her maid, Hagar the Egyptian. After Abram had dwelt in the land of Canaan ten years and gave her to her husband, Abram, as concubine. Her cohab he cohabitated, how, what a polite way to put it. He cohabitated with Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was lowered in her esteem. Seventy-two. And Sarai said to Abram, "The wrong done me is your." Where's it continue? The next page, eighty-seven. Top of the next page. Okay. The wrong done me is your fault. I myself put my maid in your bosom. Now that she sees that she is pregnant, I am lowered in her esteem. The Lord decide between you and me. Abram said to Sarai. Your maid is in your hands. Deal with her as you think right. And Sarai treated her harshly, and she ran away from her. All right, let's stop there. All right. So Sarai has borne him no children. That's what we're told. She had an Egyptian 
Shifcha, who was a her maid servant. This is what you might call in Greece a body slave. So it's a status above slave. It's the person who's your personal attendant. Often a very wealthy young woman would have been given a shifcha by her family who's been taking care of her maybe since they were both girls together, right? Maybe she's given her later, but it's someone to personally attend the wealthy young woman when she goes to get married, right? The, the shifcha goes with her. Either Sarai was of high enough rank that she had a shifcha already when she was marrying Avram, or since we haven't heard about this shifcha before, and it's been a while, possibly she's Mitzrit, she's Egyptian. Where might Sarai have come away with an Egyptian shifcha? From last week. <laughs> last week, what happened to Sarai? She was taken by... Um, she was taken by Pharaoh, by Pharaoh. into Pharaoh, Pharaoh's harem, into Pharaoh's palace, presumably as a concubine. Oh. Oh. Is that because Sarai was? Correct. And so she's taken, and she hangs out there for a while, and Avraham gets a lot of gifts, including male and female slaves. Right? And eventually, when the plague breaks out in Pharaoh's palace that indicated to him right away that there was something wrong with the arrangement with the most recent addition to the harem, then um, he says, take her and go, and he gives them lots of gifts. Most of our commentators say, uh, Hagar was one of those gifts. And the rabbis in the Midrash go so far as to say she was a princess in Pharaoh's house. Mm-hmm. So wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> yes. Abram gave his wife to the Pharaoh like, here, have my wife. Like, so he could get that, was, that, was that was last week, wasn't it? Last week. Last week. lots of goodies for her in exchange? Yes. yes. Much. So he says, pretend that you're my sister so that they don't kill me to get you, because you're so beautiful, you're going to be wanted, and they'll kill me to get you. And so she agrees, and they take her. Pharaoh takes her into the palace and has her in his harem. So Sarai presumably has been held prisoner. Certainly she wasn't, like, eager, I wouldn't imagine, to go into Pharaoh's palace. Even if it's a lovely prison... (laughs) Right, with silk pillows and feather, you know, fans and lots of people to feed you grapes. You can't leave. And you're not with your husband or your clan or anything familiar to you. And you're called upon to be a sex slave, essentially, whenever Pharaoh wants you. If Hagar was given to them or to Sarai as a shifcha, after that incident, I think we already have to think about what that means for Sarai. Right? That there's an Egyptian from the palace that's her slave now. She's getting it back at She's taking it out on her. I would love to think that our oppression always makes us more empathetic, more compassion, more open to people's pain, more 
um, likely to ally ourselves with people and their pain. Often what we know, though, of human nature is that's not what happens. That out of our own pain, we seek to discharge right, our trauma, our, our pain, by doing exactly in some ways what has been done to us. So in any case, what we know is she has um, a shifcha, a maidservant named Hagar. So if we are looking at a Torah scroll, yes? Tell me how we would see Hagar written in a Torah scroll. What, what would we see? Hey. Hey. What else? Gimel. Great. Good. Okay. Now, in a Torah scroll, are there vowels? No. No. So this is what we see when we see that word, yes? If you change the vowels, what does this say? Hager. Hager. What is Hager? I don't know. Stranger. Yes, it is. You shall not oppress a slave. You shall not oppress the poor. Why? Because we were strangers. You were strangers where? In the land of Egypt. And now we have an Egyptian named Hagar, the stranger. We, we cannot, I don't think, ignore that Hagar is the embodiment, in some ways, the characterization of the experience of Israel. And we're going to see the, the ways that continues to unfold. But it starts here. The Egyptian, Hagar, the stranger. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's where our story starts. All right, so we've got Hagar, an Egyptian. A stranger where she is, certainly. Even if we don't, we don't even have to stretch the wordplay. She's, she's not from where they are. All right. So, Sarai said to Avram, Okay. Hine. Right, yo. The biblical yo. Attention marker. Right, pay attention. Yo. Atzarni Adonai Miledet. So God, Yurevavhe, has prevented me from bearing. Bona, come, please. El Shifchati, to my Shifcha, to my maidservant. Ulai Ibanemimena, maybe I will be built up through her. Vayishma Avram lekol Sarai, and Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. So this word, Ibanen, Ibanen. Do you see another word in there that has to do something with what we have going on here? Exactly. Ben. Ben. Son. What do we usually build? What do we see with banet? What, what is usually built? What's usually built? 
is a house. What will be built up is one's household, a house, a legacy, right? Sarai is not saying you will have a son and all this promise between you and Yudhei Vavhei will come to pass. What does she say? I will be built up. I will be built up. I will have a legacy. I will have a household. I will have descendants. And status. And status as a result. She is not worried about Avram. She's worried about her own legacy, her own status, her own heir. She wants an heir. So Avram conceivably could take another wife and have all the sons he wants. That's not what Sarai is worried about or concerned about. What she's concerned about is, who's her heir going to be? She's Anne Boleyn. <laughs> yes. The king can have right. all the sons in the world. And like eventually, he'll figure it out. Like He'll do it eventually if he really wants it badly enough. But it has to be a son of my body. It has to be my heir. Or my position is gone. This is not a woman who is completely subservient to her husband's dream and her husband's vision of prophecy and serving the prophecy of her husband and his God so that her husband can fulfill the word of that. That, that is not, this is not woman as vessel, right? She is very clear that she wants this to be her heir. Ibanen, I will be built up through being the social mother of Hagar's son. Right? How did she allow herself to be taken to Pharaoh to begin with if she's got so much husband? And what exactly was she supposed to do? I don't know. Exactly. What do you do in the ancient Near East as a woman who the Pharaoh says, you're in my country, you're mine. So the Pharaoh came and got her. Maybe it, it wasn't yes. her husband that offered her. No. Uh-uh. Oh, I see. I don't know my history. Very Pharaoh's well. folk so came and got her. You got to come. You got to come to the chapel. All right. So maybe that was part of her plan too, because maybe that was the way you socially climbed. Was I mean to go to Pharaoh and get all the goodies, and she knew that. So, so the story would have been very different had they not gotten all Pharaoh's goodies, right? Or a lot of them. So, and Savina Tubal suggests right that it was exactly the sacred marriage that she went as priestess to perform, that that is, you know, possibly the earliest version of this story is that Sarai went on purpose to Pharaoh to serve as, you know, the embodiment of the goddess, that she was an equal to Pharaoh, if not a little higher, because he needed her to perform, you know, whatever ritual because of whatever was going on for him. So by the time we get the story, she's taken into his harem in the patriarchal narrative that, as we have it. But I, there is, like I've said last week, you know, part of me that wants to flirt with another idea about what that, that Sarai may originally have had her own ideas about what, what she was doing at the palace. Opportunistic ideas. Mm-hmm. She's a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. She's probably so good and better, her husband didn't want to give her up. He, Even for a slave. She's never had a child all these years, and he's supposed to, like, now got this mission to be with Yudhei Vafe, and he's supposed to have children in order to do that, and he doesn't set her aside. Yeah, he must really, she knows how Why to not? take care of him some other way. 
She's going to be, she, not yet. She's going to be 90 when, when, uh, when Isaac come, comes along. Not yet. She's not some 18-year-old. Now, no. She's not 18 years old. No. All right. We don't know. We don't know. All right. Oh. Hagar could be some young woman. Sarah could have been. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Roseanne's like, isn't it always the way? <laughs> All right, so Avraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So we're at verse 3. We're only through two verses, people. Let's go. All right, so verse 3. So Sarai, Avraham's wife, took her shivcha, Hagar Hamitrit. Hagar, think Hagar, right? The stranger, the Egyptian. After Avram had dwelt in the land of Canaan ten years, and gave her to her husband Avram as what does your translation say? A wife. I don't know. What Anybody have a different translation? What are, where are we? Verse three of chapter sixteen. Page seventy-two. Page seventy-two. Yes. The green book. Yes. The green book. Oh, you're an idiot. Seventy-two. Hebrew is Isha. So the Hebrew is Isha. Well, the red book says concubine. Green book says wife. What? How could we have two different translations? Because Isha is ambivalent as a term. It can mean someone given to a husband like a wife. You know, someone that one consorts with and has children with and has certain, a certain role within the family. It doesn't have to mean the same legal status as wife. As if she were a wife. And it says that Abraham didn't want to become involved in all of this. He didn't want to get into the middle. You're now reading commentary. Okay. Yes. So that's my job. No. So um, we're, we're going to go there. So, so what was your question, Fran? What is the status of a wife? What's the status of a wife? So already the question is coming usually from our Western kind of legal perspective of what does that mean. There was a legal status in the ancient areas, obviously, but it's a little more complicated, right? So there's first wife, second wife, third wife, concubine, slave, right? So there, there, there's lots of gradations, um, and there are laws protecting women who have the legal status of wife. There's also in Israelite society laws protecting slaves, interestingly, right? Like it's not just wives who have legal protections. It's, it's varying degrees, but slave women had rights, particularly once they'd been given to the patriarch in order to be a surrogate. These laws were traditional. They weren't codified. There, we do have codes. From pre-Sinai? Pre, um, yes. Not Jewish codes. What? Other codes. So, so Sinai is a mythic moment. Right? That, that is apart from the archaeological record of the neighborhood that we're talking about, which has, we have found law codes like the Code of Hammurabi 
that are parallel to ancient Israelite society. Exactly right. Um, so, wait, okay, so I, so I just want to be clear that, that, that earlier we talked about um, the, the slave who's been given to the patriarch as, as a surrogate. So keep that in mind because that is exactly the category of law we're going to be dealing with here. Okay? It says Isha twice. Isha lo le Isha. So where are you? On um, the end of three. Three. The end of verse three. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. But you Isha lo le Isha. Right. So he, no, a uh, no. Ha <laughs> ha. Interesting. It's a, it's a literary wordplay because it sounds exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But there's a, can you see the dot in the hay after the first Isha? Mm-hmm. That's a dagesh. That dot means a hay is doubled. They drop one hay, but it lets you know that another hay was supposed to be there. So what would that mean? Isha. Isha means her man. The ish belonging to her. Sarai's man. So she gave, she gave her, meaning Hagar, to Avraham, her man, as a wife. So it's isha lo leisha. So it sounds exactly the same in Hebrew, which, we, which is beautiful to me about the Hebrews, that it's exactly the same, because what does it do? In some ways, I think the beauty of that is that it renders Avram's status, in some ways, the same as Hagar's. Because it is Sarai who's deciding what's going to happen, to whom, and what the relationships right, are going to be. So Isha, her man, is the same as you know this... The shivcha that she's now given him, Laisha, as a wife. It is Sarai who's pulling the strings, strings here. It reminds me of Yitzhak later. In that? Is it, well, that Avram is in a way very passive <clears throat> and just following orders. Here we go. All right. So what happens? He goes and he cohabits with Hagar. And she conceives. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was made lighter in her eyes. Right? So her status, Sarah's status, was now lowered in Hagar's eyes. Vatomer Sarai el Avram. Who does Sarai go to to take issue with this? Huh? Avram. Why? What other connection does she have? Why didn't she go to Hagar? Oh, you're talking about Sarah. Yeah. Why didn't she go to Hagar? Because Avram's got some power. Because Avram, as the head of the clan, has the power. Also, it's possible. He was treating her as a wife. And he elevated her status because she was bearing his child. That the problem Sarai has is, in fact, not with Hagar. Who's her issue with? Her husband. husband, Who's treating Hagar differently as Isha, as a wife, once she's pregnant with his child. Well, he doesn't want her to miscarry. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, there's a... 
presumably wa- women were schlepping water and hauling things and whatever, the whole time they were pregnant. But, but there is a possibility that Hagar and Sarai had an arrangement. This was a common arrangement in the ancient world. Hagar wouldn't have had to sever her biological ties. She would have raised a child with, with Sarai. Her own status goes up. It can work in the ancient world. You all live together. It can work. Unless... Abram liked her a little too much. Because she was young. Or he showed her favor because... Or Sarai so thought Sarai, he was treating her differently. Or she completely blames him. Or Hagar truly does break the deal and starts to behave in a way that lets Sarai know Hagar is no longer planning to allow her to be the social mother. That Hagar is planning to keep the child. That she's reneging on the deal and she's going to deny Sarai the status as mother and that, and that the, the child will not be her heir but Hagar's. Does it say that a slave can become another man's wife? If he marries her, a slave can certainly become a man's wife. Absolutely. If this child is described later as a wild ass of a man, who cares? <laughs> So a, a so because Sarai doesn't have one, right? Whether it's a wild ass or not, she doesn't have anything right now, right? So she's desperate. She's desperate. All right. So Sarai goes to Avram and says, "What? Anochi? She says, Hamasi alecha." The Hamas done to me. Who's Hamas? Why do they use the name that they have? Hamas. Violence. Terror. The Hamas calls itself that for a reason. Here it is. The Hamas that's on me, that I'm suffering, Alecha, it's on you. Natati Shivchati. I gave you my shivcha, right? Vetere, ki harata ve'akel be'enea. And see, she's become pregnant, and now I am lessened, lightened in her eyes. Yishpot yud hevafe beini uvenecha. Let yud hevafe judge between me and you. So she's calling in the big guns who she believes will be on her side in this. Right? I've been wronged, and God is going to judge between me and you. This has nothing to do with Hagar for Sarai. So, Vayomer Avram el Sarai, and he says to Sarai, Hine shivchatech, here is your shivcha, beyadech in your hand. Asila hatov be'enayich. Do what is good to her in your eyes. V'ta'anah sarayin b'tivrach mifanah. So she then does, he says to her, she is not my wife. How does he designate Hagar here? Your slave. Here's your slave in your hands, meaning I give 
all authority over her to you. I give it back to you in case there's any confusion. The people are taking her stuff out of his tent as they speak. (laughs) Right? She's your slave. She's in your hands. You do with her what you think is good. We know what's going to be done to her. It's exactly the opposite of good. What does Sarai do to her? Huh? She afflicts her. Do we know this word from somewhere? The baby inside her. She's still pregnant. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. It doesn't say physically hurt her. Sarah has the baby or after? Huh? Is this before Sarah has her baby? Before she's ever pregnant. So, what have we heard this word afflict? That's what the Egyptians did to the Israelites. This is what the Egyptians did to the Israelites. Once again, Dr. Tikva Frey-Merkensky of Blessed Memory, in her book, Reading the Women of the Bible, I gave you her introduction to this, um, says, Hagar embodies the story of Israel. She is the stranger, right? From the land of Egypt. In this case, we're going to be strangers in the land of Egypt. And she is afflicted by her overlord, by Sarai. It almost seems to me that Hagar had a much bigger sense of what her relationship was with Avram than Avram did. Because he, like, chucks her immediately. His wife comes and complains. He says, okay, take her. Do whatever you want. Either she has a very mistaken understanding of what's going on, or Avram's not stupid. He flip-flops. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, the winds have changed. He's no idiot. You know, so, and of course we're not told, Torah's not so interested in that. It's very interested in what the women do. So what happens is, Hagar says, you know, no. And she flees. Right? All right. So she's a pregnant, fugitive, foreign, female, single slave. It doesn't get much lower on the social ladder than that in ancient Israel. Then a foreigner, you have no clan, you have no family, you have no national protections, you're not a citizen. I mean, I know that's a later term, but you know, like you're, you're not an Israelite, you're not protected by the same law, you're not even a resident alien, you're a slave, you're a fugitive, you're pregnant, you're female. Are you kidding me? Where's she gonna go? Who does she think she's going to... Where, where is she heading? Home? You're toast in the ancient world as a pregnant, unprotected, unattached to a clan or a male female. Yeah. All right. So, so what happens? Somebody come to read, please, at verse 7. And the angel found her at a spring of water in the wilderness at the spring on the road to Shur. The angel said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, whence have you come and where are you going? She answered, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of God said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her ill treatment. The angel of God went on to say to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants. They shall be too numerous to count. And then the angel of God continued, Look, you are pregnant 
and shall bear a son. Call him Ishmael, for God has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man. His hand shall be against all, and the hand of all shall be against him. Go on. He shall dwell in permanent opposition to all his kin. Boy, that came true. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Yes. Okay. Finish out six, the, the chapter. So she, called, so she called God, who had been speaking to her, You are El Roy, meaning by this, Even here I have seen the back of the one who looks upon me. That is why that well the one located between Kadesh and Beret is called Be'er Lachai Ro'ai. Hagar bore to Abram a son, and Abram called his son, whom Hagar had born, Ishmael. When Hagar bore, bore Ishmael to Abram, Abram was 86 years old. All right. So she, she flees. She's on the way. She's, where is she? By Midbar, huh? She's wandering in the wilderness, huh? Does this sound a little familiar? Not knowing where you're going exactly, wandering in the wilderness, and so what happens? She is met by a malach, a malach of Yudhevave. She's met by a messenger, right, of God, who says. Who says, Shuvi el Givirtech, go back, return, right, to your mistress. Vahit ani tachat yadea. Oh, sorry, wait. Sorry, sorry. So a malach of God finds her el ein hamayim bamidbar, by a spring of water in the, in the wilderness, right, on the way to Shur. Vayomer hagar shivchat sarai. So the, the Malach says to her, Hagar, Kama, Shifchat Sarai, right? Maidservant of Sarai, Kama. This is the first encounter of a Malach with a human being in the Torah. <clears throat> Who is it with? Our patriarch? Is it with Moses? A slave who's not even Israelite. It is the stranger, the fugitive, the one with no options, the most vulnerable possible is who we have the first encounter with. And the Malach is the first to call her what? The first to call her Hagah. The Malach is the first one to address her by her name. To address her first as a person. And says, what does the Malach say to her? Like, wh- where have you come from? And where are you going? What is the angel suggesting? Go you back. don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing, possibly. But... You have agency. Where are you coming from and where are you going? A maidservant, a slave, doesn't have control over where they're going. 
She's not called just by her position. She's first Hagar here, then, you know, handmaiden of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? What are you doing? But it suggests it's the first time she has options. And the place she has options is the meat bar, the place where she is out of place. She is out of her station. She is out of her zone. She is out of her, right, role in the meat bar. This is exactly where the Israel is going to encounter God. Is when they are out of place, when they are in that open space of the meat bar. Isn't that always where the malachas are, though? That, that's where they hang out. That is exactly where they hang out. So, so she obviously... What does she answer? Like, I, I am running away from my mistress, right? I fled, essentially. So the Malach says to her, Shuvi, return, go back, and suffer, essentially, right? Under her hand. And the Malach goes on to say, because what's going to happen? Harbe, arbe, because much, much will I, who's the Malach speaking for? God. For much will I multiply your, what? What does your translation say? Descendants. <laughs> What's the Hebrew? What is seed? Literally. No. It isn't. That's the point. What is it? The sperm. It's sperm. It's always been sperm. It's always been sperm. Seed is always sperm. Seed is always the male offspring. Right? That's what was kind of planted in the female. I mean, it was understood that they participated in conception, but your seed. It says the Torah, you shall not spill your seed on the ground. It's a sin because it's a waste. It is very clearly, and it is the only woman in Torah ever promised seed. Hagar not only is going to, if she goes back, if she uses her will and goes back and submits, right? If she take, makes the choice to go back and give up choice, she will not only match Sarai, in status, who will she match? Avram. He's been promised seed by God that will be as numerous as the blah, 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 blah. Hagar is promised if you go back, you will, you too will have seed. And it won't be Avram's heir. Right? But how excited do you get over descendants from a wild ass? Well, it's so says, when we read wild ass, we read that as a negative. Yeah. But she's a slave. Was, she has no options. She has no control over her life. What's the opposite of that? Freedom. Power. What does freedom look like? A Mustang. <laughs> but a freedom looks like a wild ass who has every oh. ability to go wherever it wants, do it's whatever really it wants. It says yeah. it's a positive thing. It can be. I mean, I'm just saying when we read that we. We see it as like a curse, but that's not, but not the case for Hagar. 
right? The paradigmatic slave, go and give up your will, go and suffer, go submit to this kind of oppression, and what will happen is you will match Avram in certain kinds of status, and your son will be free. All right. So, this is, he says to her, you're going to have a son, and you will call him Ishmael because God has heard you. Kishama Adonai, right? So God has heard. Exactly. Why will the son be free because uh, Sarah will be the social mother? She is, no, that's what she's being promised. You're going to be the mother. You, Hagar, are going to be the mother. Let's look at it. Let's look at. <laughs> Let's look at Genesis 21. Where it happens. So in chapter 21, Sarah gets pregnant. She conceives. Wait a minute. I'll tell you in a minute. She gets pregnant and she bears a son. So Sarah gets pregnant. She has a son. Right? She has Yitzchak. So now Yitzchak and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael are all living together with Avram. Yes? All right. So we are going to pick up our story at Genesis 21, verse 9, on page 114 in the red book. Does somebody have a page in the green book? 98. Page 98 in the green book. They're all numbered right at the top. If you look Genesis, it will tell you. And yeah, and then verse numbers are within the paragraph. So we're at chapter 21. We're at verse 9 on page 114 in the red and page, what is it? 98 in the green. And someone's going to read starting at verse 9. Now Sarah saw that saw the son that Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham playing. She said to Abraham, "Throw this slave girl and her son out. The son of this slave girl is not going to share in the inheritance with my son Isaac." This grieved Abraham greatly on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, "Do not be grieved over the boy or your slave. Do whatever Sarah tells you." For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be called yours. Yet I will also make a nation out of the children of the slave's son, for he too is your offspring. Early next morning, Abraham got up and took bread and a water skin and handed them to Hagar, placing them and the boy on her shoulder. Then he cast her out, trudging away. She wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was all gone, she cast the child away under a bush. She walked away and sat down on the other side at a remove of about a bow shot, thinking, let me not see the child's death. There on the other side she sat and wept in a loud voice. God heard the boy's cry, and from heaven an angel of God called to Hagar and said, what is troubling you, Hagar? Have no fear, for God has heard the cry of the lad where he is. Get up, lift the boy, and hold him with your hand, for I am going to make of him a great nation. God then opened her eyes, and she saw a well. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy to drink. 
God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became a bowman. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Pichol... Uh, we're just right. So, thank you, Roseanne. What's yes. a bowman? Archer. 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 Hunter. Isn't Ishmael around during the Akadot? I, I seem to remember that he is on the scene for the sacrifice of Isaac. Not up the mountain, but before they leave. Why? Why do I think that? Yes. It's stuck in my mind as something I read in, on uh, W. <coughs> I don't know. I have to check. Check. But I, I don't know. Um, Sarah is now mother of Yitzhak, right? Presumably, there's been an arrangement whereby she is social mother to Yishmael. That was the agreement. We have no reason to believe, we have no indication from Torah that that's not still the case. Hagar's come back. Hagar is submitted to Sarai's treatment. Ishmael's grown up. Yitzchak's now grown to a certain point. Ishmael's probably about right, 15. Hagar, we don't know what the relationship is understood by the clan or the family at this point between Hagar and Ishmael. But what does Hagar know, parenthetically? It's going to be your son. Right? So she gave birth to... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So Avram is supposed to have Yitzhak and Yishmael as his descendants. Sarah is going to have for sure Yitzhak, possibly Yishmael. Hagar has been told and presumably believes, or maybe doesn't believe, I don't know, that Yishmael is going to be her heir, but not Avram's. Because they're going to He's going to become his own nation, right? So, and that's ultimately what happens, by the way, right? Is that Ishmael becomes Hagar's heir and is taken out of the clan of Avon. And what about that prophecy that they will be fighting and what, what, what the angel said about... Ishmael. It doesn't say that Ishmael and Yitzhak will fight. But it said everybody will be against him and you will be against everyone else. So Ishmael's going to be a raider. Ishmael's going to be a mercenary. Ishmael's going to have his own band and his own posse and he's going to roam the desert doing what he likes. He's, gonna, he's not going to take anything from anybody. He's going to do what he wants. He's going to raid that camp. He's a pirate. He's going he's to do whatever he wants. The complete opposite of Hagar. Right? So we interpret it to mean, you know, whatever. But it's clear that Ishmael is going to be an independent agent who's going to be a successful nation. So Sarah has Yitzhak as her descendant. It might be at this point and Yishmael, but something happens. What happens? What does our text tell us? Well, he's making Sarai sees the son whom Hagal 
The Mitrit had borne to Avraham, whose name has been changed, by the way, Sarah and Avraham are now, their names have been changed. She sees him, they, she sees them doing what? Right? Men, Sa, Fake. So Yishmael was haking with Yitzchak. Do you hear the alliteration? Mitzachek, Yitzchak. Right? Where does Yitzchak come from? Laugh. To laugh. Mitzachek is to laughing. To play. So, what is Yishmael doing with Yitzchak that has Sarah so clear that they have to be not in the picture anymore? He's laughing at him. Laughing at him. So, what might that mean? Teasing him. Teasing him. So, Yitzchak is teasing, I mean, um, Yishmael is teasing or bullying Yitzchak. There's a difference of about a year in their age. Bigger than that. So why would that upset Sarah to the point that she's clear they have to be separated permanently? He's the older sibling. He's the primary sibling. And what is it just that he's bullying? We'll tell him to stop. The heir. But he. Oh. Well, but he, if he's the prime, if he's the older primary, so he he'll take he'll the title. People. If what? If he's still he, here. <laughs> well, yeah. If he's if he's stronger. And if he's stronger. Little Yitzchak the Yeshiva Bucher. <laughs> and Yishmael Sarah sees that with the way they're metzacheking, it ain't going to be Yitzchak who wins. Yeah. It's going to be Yishmael. Whether it's because Avram doesn't do anything, whether Avram clearly favors or encourages or doesn't get in between, or Yitzchak can't defend himself, or he's a wuss. Or he's a wuss. Or he wants to study Talmud, as the rabbi say, all day, right? Whatever it is, Sarah says, this is going to lead to disaster for Yitzchak. Not just that Yishmael might be the heir. How would Yishmael become the heir? By killing him. That she understands her son's life is in danger. That that it's really dangerous to let them stay together. Rebecca and Isaac pretend to be brother and sister also. We have another one of these wife-sister stories. How does it get figured out that, that Rebecca and Isaac are not, in fact, brother and sister? Someone sees them on their rooftop mitzacheking. <laughs> and it becomes evident that they are not brother and sister because they're mitzacheking. It's possible. incest. There's something too close. There's some molestation. molestation. There's some kind of inappropriate way that Ishmael is interacting with Yitzchak that may be sexual play, but that is very clearly about power. Right? Wait, Yishmael and Yitzchak are to having sexual? We don't know, but that is the word used with Rivka and Rebecca. Yes. Yes, track with me. They're on the roof. They've pretended to be brothers and sisters. Somebody sees the mitzah haking and understands instantly they are not brother and sister. So what are they doing? Something the brothers and sisters. Something the brothers and sisters don't do. But who at this point is Rebecca? 
So, never mind. Just leave it. It's okay. It's fine. Just leave it. So, anyway, possibly there's something going on that's too close between Yishmael and Yitzhak, and that Sarah understands this has to be broken up right now, or Yitzhak might give his power over. Maybe Yitzhak is under the spell of Yishmael and will give his power over in a way that's dis- so distressing to Sarah that she's like, mm-mm. Right? We don't know exactly what happens, but it becomes clear to Sarah that now it's over. It's over. And she wants Yitzhak to be her heir solely. What does that mean? A lot of times we go right to that they are banished. According to ancient Near Eastern law, if this is what happens, you give your slave, and then she has a a son by your husband, you can't just, like, you can't do whatever you want to her. She has legal rights. If you want to be rid of her, what do you have to do? Free her. Free her. You have to free her. She's no longer a slave. So in, we always go to banish, send away, which is in fact part of what happens. But the, the other word to be used for this is that they are emancipated. They're freed. She has to free her to let her go, now be with Ishmael and, cre- and create their own destiny. Now one could argue, okay, freeing a, a female slave and her dependent child is essentially banishing them to a horrible, horrible fate. But we see that's not what happens. And the rabbis have a little story they tell in the Midrash that Avram continues to see and support Hagar. Pride. Right? That, that they flourish, in fact, because Avram continues to pay child support. All right? And a little bit of alimony. All right, so a couple of things I want to point out before I close with a reading by Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky is that she is out with this son. She's completely at a loss of what to do. She's thirsting in the desert. Her son has become presumably dehydrated and faint. What does she do? She, she realizes he's dying. She has nothing to give him. Mothers in the room? Your child turns to you, dehydrated, dying. You have nothing to give them. I mean, she cries. She does more than cry. She puts him under a bush. Why? She doesn't want to see him die. She doesn't want to see him die. Shade. They're in the the minbar. They're in the open place of the wilderness. It's the only protection around. She's getting weak. She's dehydrating. It's hot. She has no provisions left. So she puts him under the bush. And then what does she do? She lifts up her voice and howls. All of the agony, all of the anguish of not having control, of having you know, made a choice to subject herself to what she had to, and then being separated from the only protection she knew with her son, who presumably is dying, the woman has had it, right? Mm-hmm. And she lifts up her voice and she 
howls. And at that moment, what happens? The angel hears the boy's cry, not her cry. So, so it says, by Yishma, what's the boy's name? Yishmael, Vayishma Elohim, and God hears Vayishma El to whom? Yishmael. God heard the boy whose name is God heard. Right? So interesting that she weeps, she's lifting up her voice in weeping, and God hears the voice of the boy where? Be'asher Husham, where he was. Torah never wastes words. Bert, what's the problem with those words? Oh, I thought you were going to say there was a problem with those words. No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. To say this reminded me of God heard the crying of the Israelites in Egypt. That was what it was. So they're wandering in the wilderness. They're thirsty. <laughs> they complain. God heard and God heard them and gave them water to slake their thirst and manna and quail and all those things, right? The, the angel hears the voice of the boy Ba'asher Husham, where he is. Where else would the angel hear him where he wasn't? <laughs> the, the, the Department of Redundancy Department, why is that there? Well, this is not an all-knowing God. Ah, that is another this lecture, is but God okay. Everything, the God... Like wasn't seeing it and then heard it and then paid attention. Okay, Maybe so God somewhere else. didn't know where the boy was? Heard him cry. The boy's cried Agar didn't hear the boy. The God, that Maybe this boy's cried out lots of times before. But in that place, Sham, there, God didn't hear so much or didn't listen. Right? In Hebrew, there's no difference between listen and hear. Right? But... In this place where this boy is. Place meaning situation. Place meaning new set of circumstances. New reality. Maybe new readiness. New potential. Maybe just close, so close to death. Maybe so close to this is the only hope now. Something's you know, it's clear about where that boy is. And many times we rabbis say to each other, we need to hear Jews where they are. Not where we want them to be, not where we'd like them to be, not the way we wish it were, right? That the whole teaching of Torah is we need to listen to people where they are. And when that happens, when the boy's voice is heard. What happens? The Malach calls to Hagar and says, Malach Hagar, what's with you? Literally, what's to you? What's with you? Altiri, don't be afraid. Kishama Elohim, because God has heard. El Kol Hanaar. The voice of the boy, Ba'asher Husham, where he is. Kumi, get up. Se'i et take up the boy. Ve'hechiziki et right? And take him by the hand. Ki l'goi gadol because into a great nation will I make him. Va'yivkach Elohim et and God opened her eyes. Ve'tereb be'er ma'im, and she saw a spring of water. 
Does it say, and so God sent down a bolt of lightning and created a spring of water? Nope. Nope. What does it say? She saw it. God enabled her. She then took it one step She hears the malach who says, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. This is what's going to be with your son. And she all of a sudden can see the life-saving, life-giving water that presumably was always there. Right? Hello. Right? Like, whoop, whoop, whoop. This, like, for anybody else, be, like, ringing bells about our lives where we go, right? Don't see anything. Don't see a way out. It's all dry. It's all parched. I'm going to wither. I'm going to die. Oh, my God. Right? And then there, there's that message from whoever it is that delivers it to us. The words that we need, the hope that we need, the opportunity, the whatever, the trust, the belief that it's possible, and our eyes open to the way out, the way forward, the way through. She just named in our last episode, by the way, she named God at the well. Be'er l'hai ro'i. She names God. Hagar, the shifcha, the slave, the powerless one, names God. Be'er l'hai ro'i. At this place, be'er l'hai ro'i. So that at the well, the God who sees me, the God who saw me, and when the angel of that God speaks to her, she's able to see the water that's going to save her and her son. I'm going to give you this before you go, but I'll read it to you. This part of Hagar's story, says Dr. Tikva Freimarkensky, is a forerunner of Israel's story. When the emancipated Israelite slaves wander thirsty in the desert until God provides water. And God awards Ishmael the promise that Israel will be given in the wilderness of Sinai. Each is to be a nation with a special destiny in slavery and in freedom. Hagar is Israel. The final note in the story reminds us that Ishmael's future is shaped by Hagar's understanding. A single mother, she is both father and mother, completing her paternal duties by arranging for his marriage. Avram has no role in shaping the future of Hagar and her descendants. He has relinquished that right by emancipating them. God has given Hagar that right by treating her as the head of her own family and her own lineage. The story of Sarai and Hagar is not a story of the conflict between us and other, but between us and another us. Hagar is the type of Israel. She is the redeemed slave. She is us. And Sarai is both type and mother of Israel. She is both us and the one from whom Israel is born. Pitting part of Israel's consciousness against another part, the story creates tension in the minds of the readers. At the heart of the Avram Sarah cycle is a story, story demonstrating that the destiny of the people around Israel is not utterly different from Israel's. Readers often follow the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, viewing the other peoples as branches off the trunk. But the stories themselves show a more complicated sense of history. In their view, meaning in the view of these stories, the other nations formed in these stories, Moab, Ammon, Ishmael, Edom, have destinies that are closely intertwined with Israel's. 
by God's grant, Esau and the Edomites inhabit Mount Seir, and the Moabites and Ammonites are settled in their lands. And by God's grant, the Ishmaelites are in everybody's face, untamable and not subservient to the laws of the states in which they live. The ancestral stories of Genesis understand the extreme complexity of history and the difficult nature of covenants with God. They reflect a complicated reality. May we each find a way to really, really own how complicated and therefore rich um, and possible it is to understand these relationships and their um, descendants in many different ways so that we might move this world closer to understanding um, all of us, whether we like it or not, as cousins, and that we are all here to share this amazing and fantastic broken and miraculous world we live in. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.